You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice with the Religica Theo Lab at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Reverend Dr. Doris Cope, who serves as the Minister of Outreach at First African Methodist Episcopal Church in Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much, Dr. Cope, for joining this conversation today. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. It's a pleasure and privilege as well. And I wonder if you could, if we could begin, if you'll first take a moment and tell the listener more about your position. What does a minister of outreach do and what brought you in particular to this position? Well, the minister of outreach is a new position at first AME Church. And the vision is for that ministry to act as an interface between the community and the church. I am the face of the church as far as community organizations are concerned. And some of those organizations, are most of those Christian organizations, are some of them civic, or does it depend on on the particular context or on the particular project that you might be addressing? Well, it depends, but let's just say I would be the interface between our church and Seattle University, for instance. And what I would want to do is make sure that the students there know that we are here, know that we're ready to serve, know that we have drive-by grocery giveaways, know that the doors are open for them to come and worship, to come and check us out. And so that would be an example of the interface between the academy and the church. On the other hand, um, I just finished a project where our health and wellness ministry interacted with the state of Washington to educate African-Americans on Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm. And so it will vary depending on who I'm talking with. In that same light, let's say that example, I got materials from the state and distributed them to our sister churches around the area. And it didn't matter what denomination, it's just that if we had some connection with you, then we were charged with sharing what we had. And we're glad to do that. Two questions. So the listener has a a little deeper sense of the context on this. The AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, historically, could you say a word about that just to give us some historical context? That's one. And then secondarily, on a more personal level, you just recently completed your own doctorate. Could you talk about that? What did you write on? What was of interest? And how does that fit into your work in the church? All right. Well, I'll start with the history part of the question. I am immensely proud of the history of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. We know that it was Richard Allen Absalom Jones back in the day when the country just started. Richard Allen wrote an obituary of George Washington Mm -hmm. and produced it for the members of that time. But 
the thing that I wanted to, to stress is that the African Methodist Episcopal Church fought for the freedom of expression, freedom of voice, freedom of religion, because they were people were worshiping with white Methodists and they were forced to sit in the balcony. And so on this particular day, they just decided, no, 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 mm-hmm. no, no, no. No more. No more. No more auction block for me in, mm-hmm. in, in that sense. So they went and prayed with the whites and there was a scuffle. There was a fight at the on the altar. And Absalom Jones says, just let me finish my prayer and we will trouble you no more. And they got up and they walked out and started meeting in a blacksmith shop. Mm. They started meeting wherever they could meet, but they were not going to be treated the way they were being treated at the time. It was a Black Lives Matter, if you will. Yeah, we're just, right. we're just, century. yes, yes, mm-hmm. we're, we're just not doing that. So I am, as I said, immensely proud of the history of the AME Church. And it's that history is one of the reasons why I won't leave the church mm-hmm. is because of that rich history. Writing my doctorate, I studied the Black church, the role of the church as it pertains to giving pastoral care to people who have been traumatized mm-hmm. by police violence, traumatized either by being injured by the police or they've lost a loved one to police violence, or they're just afraid of police because of the history of the police and the African-American community. It has not been good. Mm-hmm. So I based my pastoral care suggestions on feedback that I received from 41 survey participants who answered that my questions because I, I wasn't asking for anybody's name. It was an online situation. They sent the responses to me via SurveyMonkey and I wanted people to feel free and relaxed to just say what they felt so Mm. that we could build a pastoral care program based on what people thought was most important. And this was a part of the the gathering of information. So if they said these things and they knew there'd be no repercussion, they could just be free and say them. And what did you learn? Well, I learned that primarily people want the church to do their job. They mm-hmm. want to be welcomed. They want to want the church to pray for them. They want the church to not be so insular. People thought that we're gazing at ourselves and that some person said you're even harming the community Mm -hmm. because it's like a club. And if you don't belong to the club, you just can't get in. The other thing that was said was that we don't know what the church has to offer. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing amount of people who said we have no idea because we don't feel welcomed. Yeah. We don't feel loved. This is interesting on so many levels as well, because on the one hand, you have the rich history 
that you've described in such kind of abbreviated but rich form of, as Reverend Jones notes, when I'm done praying, let me finish praying, we'll trouble you no more. That kind of personal commitment in the moment. I think we all can understand that in our lives, you know, where you have to put your foot forward and say, I'm going to lean in in this moment because my values, my beliefs, my sense of what matters in the world, even in the universe, this is the moment. Starts this church on the one hand. On the other, and I think so many church communities can identify with this, and people in those communities can identify with what you've said. Years later, the question, well, gosh, I don't know what this community is about. Part of it is it the societal challenges we're facing? Is it the fact that we're disconnected from a sense of community? Is it about perhaps a consideration that we we don't belong to community in the same way we did before? What do you think, or what did those respondents kind of inform in your thinking about what seems to be tearing at the fabric of a sense of community belonging or being at home in the church? Well, the sense of community, first of all, we have been scattered as a culture. Yeah. I go to church in the central district. I live in the suburbs. So the gentrification, the idea of who is your neighbor, we were all there in the same box. I grew up in an area where there was a doctor next door. There might have been a gardener next door. There was a a housekeeper. There was a cook, like my mother was a cook. So that sense of community came from, we knew we weren't moving to the suburbs. We weren't allowed. I can remember sitting on the back of the bus. We weren't allowed to be in the front or to choose where we were going to be. So we had to love one another. If Mm -hmm. I, if you needed a cup of sugar and I had two cups, then you got that one cup. Or uh, we have a blues song. I asked my baby for a nickel and he gave me a $20 bill. (laughs) That says that that there was a generosity there. So, and we had beginning with, and maybe not beginning then, but I just used the Reagan years as a marker. The Nancy Reagan and those dishes. Mm-hmm. And the Nancy Reagan suits and everything about was about them. We became a me, me, me. Everything's about me. We get, so that that fostered a materialism that we are yet su- suffering from. Getting killed over a pair of uh, Nike sneakers, for yeah. instance, that was not a one-time shot. So we we just scattered, and I think our values have shifted away from community to materialism. Today, I'm speaking with Reverend Dr. Doris Cope, who serves as a minister of outreach at First African Methodist Episcopal Church in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Cope, tell us more about your family and the story of your grandfather. Well, my grandfather was the father, on my mother's side, was the father to nine beautiful beautiful girls. They had no brothers. There was no gender specified work. You had to get out and do, if they were killing a hog, you had to get out and help. There was just this sense of connection and community 
between them. I mean, they knew what it means to be. That's my sister. Mm. That was a holy kind of kind of not just title, but kinship there. Where do they live? Where did they what part of the country? They lived in Tennessee. Okay. In Lincoln County, Tennessee. Mm. And my grandfather refused to allow any of those nine girls or his wife, Callie, for that matter, to work for white people. Mm -hmm. He knew that that white men could rape their bodies, mutilate their bodies with impotence and never have to pay one consequence for doing so. So he did not allow them to work for whites. Instead, they work the land. I have the land now. So today you have today this land is in your possession as the granddaughter of one of those nine. Is that right? Yes. As the granddaughter of my grandfather, my mother was the first of the nine. Was the first of the nine. Got it. Yes, yes, yes. So what what is that like to be the person, the woman, the the granddaughter who is, and also the, the niece to so many of those women? The women are gone. There are three of them of the nine left. Okay. But I had to legally to I purchased the land from them. From, and it's tremendously again proud of that because in an era where families were splintered they were together and the land connected them yeah if you will i was looking at trying to develop the land but the topography is so rough there's no running water there Mm. the limestone is so strong and tough to to drilling for water it's crazy but i get calls and letters from people developers wanting to buy the land from me. And I refused to do that Mm -hmm. because of the way my grandfather stood up for our family. I mean, stood up in a time he bought that land in 1918 Mm -hmm. and in 1918, what was going on in the country at that time he did it. And more than the land, I have the receipts of where he was paying 50 cents at a time. The paper is very fragile now, mm. but he would keep his receipts in a little tobacco sack. And I have those in a crystal candy dish here in my house. Yeah. What is that? I mean, it's an obvious question, but what does that mean for you when you look at those? Oh, it just, well, first of all, it means be very careful about how you handle things in your family, how you handle yourself in the world, how you handle yourself as a womanist, how you walk your path. So I'm just so proud to have those sacks. And I don't know what he had to do to gather up the money to pay a little bit at the time and a little bit at the time. But I have the deed and it got done. And it makes me know that I've come from a get it done kind of people. So it's just beautiful. You know, I was thinking as you're mentioning the limestone, it's a land that was 
farmed to it produced did it produce food for the family mm-hmm. yes yes and was a place of clear safety right yes yes and probably in the 1980s we just finished celebrating our 43rd annual family reunion this past weekend so we we went there and the house that my mother had lived in that they lived in was still standing it's not now yeah but i went in there yeah and it was just such an amazing feeling to know that this was the best that he could do for his family and it was enough when i was down there there's a little town, Fayetteville, Tennessee, is not far from where where we were. Anyway, people still remembered him. Mm -hmm. And they would wave and they'd say, you Rob Clark's granddaughter? I said, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. And yeah, and then then off they they would go into a story about him. What did they think about him? What did they have to say about your grandfather? They had nothing but respect he was something he was somebody he was, i just remember him with those girls and you you knew not to cross them you just knew not to mm-hmm. because he was just so protective mm-hmm. of them and so i think about those stories and then i thought think about well how fortunate i am because in 1918 black people were catching hell for the most part and here i come from these people who said, you know, we are not wealthy, but we are rich and rich, rich, you know, rich. You mentioned 1918. It's the end of World War One. It's also the beginning of the what we know is the Spanish flu. And we haven't seen a global pandemic of that kind until say the spring of 2020. And I just think it's interesting that you mentioned that year because also in in May of 2020, we saw the first video, if I may, just thinking about this, I'd like to say a few things and get your comments on on them. Mm-hmm. In May of 2020, a video was released from three months before, speaking of the need to be protective and for good reason. And the video showed an African-American man, Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, but then also George Floyd on May 25th, who was murdered. And the national sentiment from 1918 to 2020, 102 years later, some had suggested it felt like a, a tight wire had snapped and there was a public discord that had taken place in protests across the country, but also in urban centers around the world. There's something about race relations in the United States and our inability perhaps to remember and perhaps even a self-induced amnesia, but something that disallows us from remembering perhaps what should be at the core of those relationships, a sense of protection that your grandfather demonstrated for his own family. Mm. What do you think about that, about that that lapse of time and and also as you reflect on that expanse, your own story between purchasing the land and, and 2020 and the beginning of another pandemic. Well, let me go with this in, in this way. Imagine COVID. Yeah. And we know that my work is about people who've been traumatized by the police. And there are people who said, 
when you talk about the snap that happened, yeah, either COVID is going to kill me or the police is going to kill me. Mm-hmm. But I'm getting out to fight mm-hmm. back. I am not going to sing We Shall Overcome anymore. It was someone else's reform movement, wasn't it? Yes, yes. So I'm thinking that that snap was about the same thing as Absalom Jones did when they said, no, no more. It was the no more. The remembering, again, in my work, people were saying, survey participants were saying, look, Black church, you ought to every year, maybe twice, three times a year, have memorial services for people who have fallen to police violence so that the memory of their lives is not erased from our consciousness. We don't get amnesia mm-hmm. about who they were. In fact, that they were somebody's precious one, somebody's father, somebody's cousin, somebody's uncle. And so we can't afford that kind of amnesia. So Black church, help us remember people who have fallen, who've been traumatized. Yeah. And you also mentioned this term earlier about what it means to be a womanist and helping to remember it requires, it seems, the capacity to find a voice. And I think you've demonstrated the voice in your own family, that sense of voice of safety, the voice of protection that is honored by the community that remembers your grandfather, your grandparents, but also your own voice. What do you mean when you say this word, womanist? A womanist. We read the Bible for ourselves. We are at the center of voice, if you will. We're interpreting the Holy Spirit to be inclusive, to mean us as well. In your doctoral work, what I read and when I hear you speaking, I hear a kind of womanist theological voice. And you mentioned the term womanist before. Is that accurate? And and if so, for the listener, what is a, a womanist theological way of looking at the world or engaging the world? Well, if we consider the fact that theology is the study of spirit of God, then a womanist theology studies and practices from the perspective of Black women, Mm. from the perspective of caring for the whole of our community, from the perspective of loving our community, from the perspective of reading the scriptures from our stance. And I would say there's some scriptures like the Pauline letters where we're instructed to slaves obey your masters. We're not hearing it. We're not doing that. We're looking at our health and our well-being spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. So the whole of who we are. And again, the womanist theology centers, puts the Black woman at its center mm-hmm. versus white women or versus maybe even women of color in general. We've got a, a scholar who says Black women's experience in America is different 
from others and our relationship with police is different from others based on our history. Can you say more about that? I think that's this may be one of those few times that listeners who aren't familiar with this have an opportunity to really think about this in their own communities. In your, as you're discussing this and in conversation, as you've done this theology and in your own doctoral work, what is the uniqueness? What is the difference there that makes a unique contribution in society over the historical length, as we've, dis- as we've discussed, in America? When we're moving Black women, you turn on your television this afternoon, mm-hmm. you're going to see Black women in places where we've never seen Black women before. You're also going to see us learning or having learned what we haven't been able to before. Our history was a forced history in this Mm -hmm. country. And I am reminded of James Baldwin and Niebuhr, their conversation, where those little girls had been blown well, uh, the church had been blown up and there were four little girls were killed. And there was a window pane that survived the bomb and it bore the face of Christ. And Baldwin says to neighbor, he says, maybe we create our deities, but maybe it's time, not maybe, but it is time for mm. us to create a new face of Christ. Woman's theology is a place where we can do that work. Renita Wings talks about the irony of, no, I'll go back to Baldwin, the way you have treated Black women. The irony is that it's going to take Black women to help save this country. That's the uniqueness of it, to help Mm -hmm. us get those votes out, to help us realize that we are never alone, that we are strength personified. And on the other hand, we're vulnerable as well. Mm -hmm. So we've got the light side, dark side, heavy light kind of thing. And I think our walk with Christ is like that, that it's on the one side, we can sing, Jesus loves me. Yes, I know forevermore. But on the other side, all of my help comes from the Lord to study, to care for my community in a way that helps us all thrive. And so that's what I have to say about that. Is it the case that Black women in the United States are increasingly in a position of being able to be uh, bridge builders in a way that others are not in a position to provide? Like, say, someone like myself, a white man. I don't mean this carte blanche, but there are leaders who are being lifted up that are in a position of credible bridge building who are Black women now, and you can imagine 10, 20, 30 years from now, who will be doing significant, potentially significant work. Absolutely. I would totally, totally 
agree with you there. I, I can't speak for all black women, but I, right. I can say, I can just look at what we're studying these days. Look at what we're doing. Look at how we're training people in within the black church to lead from the right now, the, our young people's department. I have a niece who is going to Spain to live for the uh, next couple of years because she studied international business with Spanish as a minor. She works for IBM. She's on her way. Mm-hmm. And then her twin sister is an industrial engineer. And so they're both on their way. And they came right out of the hood. There was a foundation, white men, who gave them scholarship from when they were in the eighth grade till they graduated college. They had the Kaufman Foundation did that. So I'm just saying that we're training up a people now that will be able to bridge professionally, theologically, in every way. We're just a different woman right now. And we're ready to make the unique difference and how we live as a country. Yeah, and it's not to say that any of those who have led before don't have a pivotal role. You're describing one already right there. It's just simply the question of where are pivotal roles in the future and where are the new voices and the voices that are included in that new future. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could say more about this this question also of of representation. We're coming up on the midterm elections. But we know that speaking of one of these women who are leading, Latasha Brown, who is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, is an individual professional who cares deeply for the represented vote. And we know that uh, voting districts have been racially gerrymandered, Mm -hmm. politically gerrymandered over the course of the last three decades. There have been cases that began in 1993 to 95 with the, what was called the Shaw v. Reno, Shaw versus Reno case that began in North Carolina. And those have continued to this day where we have, in, in effect, changing these voting districts for racial and political reasons. And it comes down to representation, equal representation under the law. And the Supreme Court at the time of, of our conversation is just about to weigh in on this again. Where are we, do you think, as a country in terms of, do we have a, a clearer understanding of the importance of, of our own voices, of the represented voice, and of the importance of the vote within society? How important do you think that is within any of these communities, within the Black community, within the AME community, and the church's role to representing the needs of of its own members through the vote today? Well, let me just say that we get the importance of representation and the importance of voting. And we simply cannot afford, just because it's the midterm, to stay home because a lot is riding on the outcome here. Mm -hmm. We had Stacey Abrams in town Georgia. Yes. We have Warnock. We have Pastor My Church ran Mm. for political office this term. He did not win, but he's got himself, he put himself out there. And Mm -hmm. I think we have to put ourselves out there to speak for ourselves. 
who's going to speak for us if we don't? Mm-hmm. And who's going to encourage us to vote if we don't encourage ourselves? I remember last year, year before, put together a get out the vote drive from my church. They had videos and had just, we just advertised, advertised, advertised and encouraged people to get out and vote. And if you didn't have a ride, we'll give you a ride. Mm-hmm. But it is as critically important, it's even more important now to have representation because of the, in recent years, we have seen segments of the white community trying to push us back to the 1950s. Yeah. So there's nothing more important. Yeah. And understanding and pressuring, if you're going to say you're my representative, then represent. That means that you have to understand what the needs are and how to maneuver within the system to bring something home. You know, I don't know if I've ever mentioned to you, but I may have in our last conversation, just as we've talked personally together, but in 1993 to 95, I, I served in a law firm in North Carolina. We argued this case on racial ger- gerrymandering. We won our case on the Shavi Reno case all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was argued twice there. And the the piece that was left with me in my own kind of consciousness through this that unveiled the mask of any kind of assumption that I might have had before that people were always acting in good faith, if I may put it that way, is that many districts that were created and were racially gerrymandered, of course, they're always going to be created for very rational and prudent reasons. That doesn't mean they're not actually intended to restrict voting, period, whether that's for racial or political reasons. And for me, that was a real wake-up call about the history of structural racism in the United States, Mm. that it is so easily justified and so prudently rationalized and with such poise. And yet it is what it is, even when it comes at you with under the veneer of, of what seems acceptable, especially then. So to your point, the need to vote and to have voting representation. I'm so appreciative for your time today and for this conversation. When you think about your study and the question that some of those respondents asked, what does the church do? What is the role of a religious community today? What should it be doing? After all of your study and writing your dissertation and this conversation, and when you think of the challenges in society, including police violence, what do you think? What is the role of the church today in responding to all of this? How would you start? Well, I would start out by saying in the epilogue of my work, I quoted someone named Rochelle Farrell. She's a singer, and she say her lyric is, Lord, have mercy, I got nothing in the middle. Mm-hmm. Nothing in the middle to help people move from trauma to wholeness. Nothing in the middle to soothe my soul as my head has been slammed mm-hmm. on the pavement. Nothing mm-hmm. in the middle to say, Black Church, Open your doors mm-hmm. so that people can come in and get out of the fray. Nothing in the middle says the Black church, people were asking for counseling. 
Mm-hmm. One person said, we black men and women are asked or forced to hold it all in. Mm-hmm. And if we ask for help, we look weak and pitiful. And besides, mm-hmm. some of us don't want everybody in our business. So Mm -hmm. the role of the church is to build that bridge between somebody who is hurting and traumatized, hungry, and wellness. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been sent to free people in prison, to visit the sick, the clothes, and clearly to, again, help protect Go back to my grandfather. Help protect the community from the vileness of violence. Mm-hmm. I'm with uh, Reverend Dr. Doris Cope. Thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. That's right. You're certainly welcome. One thing I did did not say is this gun violence. We have yeah. got to take a stand on the gun violence. We're in church. Sometimes afraid. You remember Mother Emanuel and then mm. all these AK 47 type weapons. Yeah, We've got to show. get out, not just the black church, but the church period, and take a stand mm. against that. No more. No more. No more. No more. And there's a hunger for that in this country and in the, in the world indeed. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.